Sometimes we may find ourselves rejoicing in things that are rather surprising. You ever had that kind of experience? Uh, finding joy in the midst of some hardship? Maybe, be, maybe being thankful in the midst of pain? Or expressing praise in the middle of a valley? When life gets hard, our natural instincts are to be sad, to whine or complain, to fret or worry, to put on a, a brave face and try to fix things, or just to despair and give up. But sometimes, in the midst of difficulties, we can find unexpected sources of joy. Maybe in the, the love or support that is shown to us by our family or friends. Maybe in the way that, that trials often force us to, to reprioritize our lives or reshape our lives in good ways. Or maybe in looking back on difficult seasons and seeing how God was at work. And a while back, Angela and I were asked to map out our life paths on a timeline, showing both high and low points, times of, of relative joy or sorrow, and to consider how God had used those times in our lives to shape us, to shape who we are now. And we were amazed at the results. Because between us, we had a number of, of difficult circumstances. We had life-threatening accidents or surgeries, health concerns, family strife, broken relationships, life-altering moves, dying loved ones, and depression. These were things that were very hard to go through at the time. But looking back on each one, it was amazing to see how God had used those hardships to either draw us closer to him, to, to build character in us, or to just open up opportunities for us that we never would have had otherwise. And we found ourselves, remarkably, thanking God for even the hardest seasons of our lives. And many times, the trials that we go through in life end up being definite blessings in disguise. And I want to suggest today that rejoicing in those blessings is to be normal for believers. The rejoicing in those blessings is to be normal for believers even if and when we can't see the blessing behind the disguise. I invite you to open up your Bibles at this time to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. As we started out in 1 Peter, I mentioned last week that the verses 3 down to 12 here are all one super long sentence in Greek. So I'm kind of breaking some preaching rules by, preach it, by breaking this passage up into three. But it's also just too packed with amazing truth to rush over all at once. So today we're going to cover just four verses right in the middle, verse 6 down to verse 9. But before we jump in, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts, open our eyes, and help us to receive your word today. May your truth go forth from this place with power. May your spirit be working on each one of our hearts. 
I pray that you would encourage those who need encouragement today. You would convict those who need conviction. And that you would bring joy to all of us through your word and through Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember that this is the Apostle Peter writing these words to several churches scattered around. But in verse 1, he called the believers he was writing to elect exiles. In other words, they'd been graciously chosen by God to be his people. But they'd also been chosen to live as though they were in exile which involved being treated like discriminated against foreigners in a land that was, true, that was not their true home. Hence why I subtitled the sermon series as Holy People in a Hostile Place. And these believers were not in a fun or comfortable place in life. Life was hard for them. And yet Peter began his letter to them with an exclamation of praise in verse 3. This is what we saw last week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And just to summarize those verses, we see that our hope is a living hope. It is alive. And all that's because Christ is our hope and Christ is alive. No matter how bleak life may be for at the seam at times, believers inherently have an abiding hope. Hope for an internal inheritance, it says, of salvation in heaven where God dwells. And the main application point from all of this was that we need to praise God for this. Praise God for our living hope. As his mercy secures eternal blessing and as his power secures us until then. Mercy without power or power without mercy are meaningless and hopeless. But when you put the two together, you get the strong hope and assurance of our faith. And we can see both his mercy and his power vividly displayed in the gospel, of course, of Jesus Christ. His mercy for our sin was shown on the cross where, he, where Christ died in our place. And then his power was shown through his resurrection where he trampled over death and sin. And when you focus on, on these things, we have hope. We have hope for really what it describes as an indestructible future. That we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. By God's power we are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, we might think, though, this all sounds like an overly rosy outlook on life. But how can we be filled with hope while life tends to be so awful in the here and now? Peter's going to tell us that actually those things are completely related. Right? That our present hardships are directly related to our future hope. To put it briefly, our present trials 
impact that future day, and our future hope should impact our present trials. But first, Peter's going to reiterate his main point of this passage in verse 6, though I will phrase it differently today. Here's the big idea for us, okay? We shouldn't just praise God for our living hope. We should rejoice in our living hope. Rejoice in our living hope. In the present, we should rejoice in the living hope that God has given to us. Look at how verse 6 says this. It starts out, In this, you rejoice. In this, you rejoice. Rejoice in what? What's this? In this. Well, that's summarizing those three verses I just read before, verse 3 to 5. So we rejoice, we praise, and we bless God because he has rebirthed us to a living hope. We rejoice in the resurrection. We rejoice about our future inheritance. We rejoice about heaven. We rejoice in God's power which guards us. In this living hope, you rejoice. Rejoice. Philippians 4.4 commands us, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's not given as an imperative or a command here in 1 Peter. But it might as well have been. Because this is the posture that Peter assumes believers are taking. And he implies that this is precisely what they're supposed to be doing. Their rejoicing was really merging with the praise that Peter gave in verse 3, where he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this, you rejoice as well. Now, when you think about rejoicing and, and joy, maybe you think of happiness, smiles, laughter. Maybe you think about celebrations like weddings or birthday parties. Maybe you think of, of sports fans cheering about a big goal or a big win. Or maybe you think about being happy about your circumstances in life, so rejoicing in finishing exams or having a new baby or getting a new job. Now those are all forms of rejoicing. And they do have something to do with happiness. However, joy in the Bible is much deeper than mere happiness. It's more than happiness. Because true joy transcends our circumstances. No matter what else is going on, we can still have joy. True joy is a deep confidence and delight in God and His promises no matter what. See, the fact that Peter says we should rejoice here isn't surprising at all. God has been good. Rejoice. What's surprising is the setting in which Peter says believers should be rejoicing. And that's what the rest of verse 6 talks about. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So in short, Peter says that believers should rejoice even as they are grieved. And that doesn't make much sense to us. Right? Rejoice though you're grieved? How can we do that? Well, we can do that by recognizing the reality of what Christ has done, and, or of reality of Jesus and what he's done for us. Because the fact that God loved you 
enough to send his son to die for you should outweigh whether or not other people on earth love you. The fact that Jesus has secured new life and eternal life for us should overshadow the life or death peril that we find ourselves, sometimes maybe with our health. The fact that the, the Spirit lives inside of believers and that he'll never leave us nor forsake us should be more significant in our minds than the loss or abandonment of others. God has caused us to be born again. He's given us a new life, a new hope, a new destiny. So, yes, absolutely we grieve. We grieve on earth. Life can be hard, and life can be sad. But at the very same time as our grief, we can also rejoice. And we can rejoice, Peter says, because the things that grieve us actually have a purpose. Look with me again, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that's a pretty complex sentence, even in English. Here's how I understand it. All right? It says, you rejoice even as you're grieved so that your faith ends up glorifying God one day. You rejoice even as you're grieved so that your faith glorifies God. I summarize the point this way. We should rejoice in our living hope so that our trial-tested faith glorifies God. We rejoice in our hope so that our trial-tested faith results in God being glorified. Now before we look deeply at verse 7, verse 6 has, still has some really hope filled things to say to us. First, for the, the people that Peter was writing to, most of their trials were likely related to persecution. So when people put their faith in Jesus, it cost them. It often cost people their reputations or their status in their communities. No one thought of them as cool anymore. No one thought about it even respectable. They were thought as crazy. It caused people relationships as family or friends ostracized them. They'd face mockery, laughter, rejection, discrimination, or worse. It cost many their health as they were imprisoned, mistreated, or beaten. And it even cost some people their lives. And these are the kinds of various trials that Peter is talking about. And you may think, well, I can't relate to any of those experiences, or many of them. Though, I would say I fully expect hostility against Christians to increase over time. So we may. But also notice that while the immediate context may have been persecution, Peter doesn't say that's all he's referring to here. He says you've been grieved by various trials, which could include almost anything. Right? The fact is, we are grieved by all kinds of trials on earth. 
not just persecution. And many of you know this firsthand. You've experienced all kinds of pain and grief in this life. Maybe you have been grieved by the death of someone or, or multiple ones that you love. Maybe you've been grieved by health challenge after health challenge after health challenge. Maybe you've been grieved by unemployment, poverty, hunger, injustice. Maybe you've been grieved by a son or daughter wandering away from the Lord. Maybe you've been grieved by the pain of infertility or miscarriage. Maybe you've been grieved by a, a friend betraying you or your family attacking you. No matter what you've gone through in life or, or what you're going through right now, what I encourage you today is to take hold of hope. Take hold of hope for two reasons that we see right here in verse 6. First of all, you have gone, you've only gone through these things if God deemed it necessary. Did you see that? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now that doesn't mean that God is cruel for putting you through it. It means he's got a sovereign plan and a purpose for what you've gone through. And second, all of the various trials you face, no matter how long you face them for, all of our being grieved happens for merely a little while. A little while. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now you may object there and think, oh, I have suffered for months, if not years. Now, you don't understand. Trials have been relentless for me. And I feel like Job. Here's what I understand. I understand that man was born to trouble as sparks fly upward. I understand that you may, in fact, live a miserable life for 30, 60 90 years. But if you have the right perspective, a biblical perspective, you can understand that even that is only for a little while. Even if you suffer your entire life, which most of us don't do anyway, but even if you do, in the grand scheme of eternity, your suffering will be over in the blink of an eye. I'm going to steal and adapt an illustration from Francis Chan here, and many of you have probably seen it before. But if for those of you who haven't, it's a good refresher. I want you to imagine that this rope is your existence. All right, so that this represents a timeline of your life. So you, can, you might imagine that you're born here, and then you go through your childhood, and then eventually you, you head off out your parents' home to college, university, get your first job, maybe you get married, have kids somewhere along the line, and all the while you keep working and working, and eventually you get to the point where you can retire, and then you enjoy your grandkids, and then you die. 
and maybe you have a trial here or here and, and a bunch right here and another one back here. But all along, like really you have a nice long life. That's not how the Bible sees our life, is it? James talks about our life being a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. So a more realistic picture of your existence would be that this little green section represents your life. Your entire life on earth. And that the rest of this rope is eternity if only the rope went on forever. It doesn't. It goes about 50 feet. But <laughs> If it went forever, that's eternity. Right now, we get so fixated on the now. We give hardly a second thought for eternity. We, we think about next year or even next week, next year, maybe next decade if we're thinking way ahead. We think that, that the future comes slowly, that death is far off. Now, this concept has massive ramifications for the way we live our lives, really in every area of life, from the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the way we plan, the way we set our goals, on what we desire in life. But today we're talking about suffering, suffering in the light of eternity. So do you realize that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that every ounce of pain and suffering you will ever go through happens in this section. And this is our hope. This is our living hope. Our hope in Christ. Meanwhile, I think 2 Corinthians 4, it's great cross-reference here, so we do not lose heart, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the th things that are unseen are eternal, and like Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If we can see the trials that we go through with that eternal perspective, it changes everything. And that's what Peter's trying to get across here. He's like, don't you realize that your trials have a purpose, an eternal purpose? And this purpose plays right into his main point of praising God and rejoicing in God. Look, in verse 6 into 7, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, this pain that you feel now, it can lead to eternal glory for God. How so? Well, because trials have a way of revealing whether or not we have faith in God. And if we do have faith, if we have true faith, God gets all the glory for that because true faith by nature places all of our trust in him and not in ourselves. 
Uh, if you ignore for a moment the, the words between the dashes, you can see the point of verse 7 more easily probably. It says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when we trust God through trials, it results in God being praised. Now, inside the dashes, Peter paints a picture of how valuable our faith is. It says that your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Now, gold is, of course, one of the most precious commodities on earth. Second, maybe to Bitcoin. Gold is, is good for jewelry. It's good for investments. It's good for all kinds of, of things on earth. And Peter talks about gold being tested by fire. That's how, it, how gold is refined or purified. It's by going into the fire. So even most fire won't destroy gold. It just makes it more stronger. It makes it more precious. But even gold can perish under the right conditions. Gold doesn't rust, but it can tarnish. It can be melted at a 1,064 degrees Celsius. And it can even dissolve under certain chemical conditions. By comparison, Peter is saying, apparently saying that true faith in Christ will never perish which makes our faith even more precious, more valuable than gold. This also implies that, that God actually uses our trials that we go through to strengthen our faith. And this is said a number of other places in the Scripture too. But I love how Edmund Clowney describes this concept. It says that God sends trials to strengthen our trust in him so that our faith will not fail. The fires of affliction or persecution will not reduce our faith to ashes. Fire does not destroy gold. It only removes combustible impurities. Yet even gold will at last vanish with the whole of this created order. Faith is infinitely more precious and more enduring. Like a jeweler putting his most precious metal in the crucible so god proves us in the furnace of trial and affliction the genuineness of our faith shines from the fire to his praise this is one of the reasons why i loved many of the testimonies that were shared at our baptisms a couple weeks ago sometimes god leads us to himself despite our comfort or our health or our good place in life he can work through that anyway but more often than that, God does his greatest work by bringing us to the end of ourselves. For example, just one example, Justine shared how, how God used a difficult breakup of a toxic relationship to make her hit rock bottom, tearing away many of her idols. And it was there that God revealed himself to Justine and she placed her faith and him. And what was her testimony? That that rock bottom was a hard and yet glorious place to be. Hard yet glorious. I think God was overtly praised through that story. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, scholars debate whether this refers to Christ receiving glory or us 
receiving glory. I would tend to think it's the former, that our faith results in, in God's glory. But ultimately, both are going to happen. John Piper says, when Jesus appears in glory, two things are going to happen. His glory will be magnificently reflected in the mirror of our faith. He will be the trusted one and the hoped for one and the rejoiced in one. So his glory will shine in our faith and hope and joy. And the more pure and refined the gold of our faith, the more clearly his beauty and worth will be reflected. But since God exalts all that exalts him, he will also give praise and honor and glory to our faith. And we will see finally that the design of God in our distress has been the extraordinary joy of sharing in the very glory and praise and honor of God himself. Now that doesn't blow you away. That truth should transform the way that we approach hard seasons in our lives. When we realize that our present suffering will bring honor to God and ourselves one day, it might not make things less painful, but it should make things more endurable. It may or may not make things more understandable for the time being. It might not make things less difficult, but it should make us complain less and it should enable us to even counterintuitively rejoice. When Peter says that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's talking about Jesus' return there, the day that he returns to earth. And that's the day when our faith will become sight, which is really the basis of our hope. We're hoping with confidence, we're, we're hoping for our imperishable, undefilable, unfatable inheritance. We're hoping for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We're hoping that our trials will indeed result in glory. But undergirding all of those things, we are hoping to one day see our Savior. And that is the final point we'll see for today from verse 8 and 9. We are to rejoice in our living hope in loving anticipation of our faith becoming sight. Our love for Jesus and our anticipation for Jesus' return should help us rejoice in our hope now. We're to rejoice in our living hope in loving anticipation of our faith in Christ becoming sight. Let's see how Peter says this. So that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, these particular early believers were in the same situation we're in now, really. We haven't seen Christ in the past, and we don't see him now in the present. We must have faith that he exists, that he lived, died, rose again, 
and that our faith that and faith that he will come again one day that our faith will have an outcome Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. So faith in Jesus is believing in Jesus despite having not seen him yet. And what sustains our faith in the hostile days in which we live is love and anticipation combined. We see both of them here. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, how important is, is love to our faith? I don't know how you could sustain faith in Christ without a love for Christ. So I ask, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Even though you didn't see him on the cross, or you didn't see him after he rose again, do you believe that he accomplished those things out of love for you? If you do not yet believe. I would desperately urge you to do so today. No one takes kindly to their love being scorned. Least of all a holy God. But the amazing love and mercy of God is available to you this morning. If you will repent of your sins and trust in Christ dying and rising in your place, that pours out on you. And if you already believe that to be true, the natural response to love is to love him in return. We love because he first loved us. And now here's the telling questions. How do you love him? How do you love him? How do you show your love for him? How can we cultivate a love for Christ that grows and grows every more each day until we see Him. I'm not going to answer that question for you, but you may consider things like the time you spend with Him or with His people or serving Him. Many possible answers, but how do you show your love for Christ? Because a deep love for Christ will help you face whatever comes your way now. Because you'll realize that you can love him by the way that you respond to trials. And you'll realize that, that Christ is loving you even in the middle of your trials. When the early French Protestants, the Huguenots, were persecuted in the 17th century in France, many men that were caught in this secret worship, underground worship, they were enslaved, put in ship galleys, and they'd be chained to a bench and forced to row until they died. There's a museum in, in southern France that now commemorates those martyrs. And right next to a replica of a galley and their, their giant oars are these words inscribed by one of those slaves. It said, my chains are the chains of Christ's love. My chains are the chains of Christ's love. You, can you recognize whatever figurative chains you're dealing with now as chains of Christ's love? Having an eternal perspective can do that. Remember that you are an elect or a chosen exile. God in his love put you where you are. 
And if you love Jesus, you'll hardly be able to wait to see him. Just like these people. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, even though we don't like to wait much for anything nowadays, we do enjoy anticipating things. Right? It's the reason that, that movies put out trailers. Build your anticipation for them. It's the reason that we look, so look forward to days like Christmas or a wedding or a graduation. It's the reason we often think, okay, what's next? What can I look forward to now? It's because there is a, a joy that increases alongside of anticipation. And if we're anticipating Christ's coming, then our joy, I believe, should grow simultaneously. So I ask, are you looking forward to Jesus' return? Is your anticipation growing? And if so, great. If not, why not? Are there things that are bogging you down now, preventing you from looking ahead? distracting your focus. What changes might need to happen to our schedules or our budgets or things like that to focus on eternity? If this verse doesn't describe us, we have to ask why it doesn't. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I think our joy is often robbed by a fixation on the present rather than the future. And God's Word constantly tells us, look ahead, live for that, set your heart there, set your mind there, fix your eyes on Jesus, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, joy is what helped Jesus endure the worst possible circumstances we can imagine. Joy. Joy was set before him. And now, joy is set before us. Not just any joy. Joy that rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, inexpressible joy. So, in other words, I could talk for hours on this and not describe it adequately. Words can't express it. It's quite literally joy beyond words. It says it's filled with glory, beauty, splendor, honor. And Peter says that this doesn't just describe our future reality, this should be our present reality. This should describe every Christian because every Christian is in reality obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
present tense. We are already on the road of obtaining our salvation. This isn't something that we need to earn or obtain God's favor for ourselves. Jesus already did that for us through his life, death, and resurrection. So once we have faith in that, all that we're left to do is praise God. Rejoice in him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many of the, the very same things that bring us distress now will bring us joy and glory in eternity. So when your faith is mocked, laughed at, take heart. That will lead to joy. Your joy in the face of that won't make any sense to the world around you. It might not even make sense to you. It's inexpressible after all. When your family turns on you, it's hard. But it can be endured. And joy is still possible. Because Jesus will never turn on you. And you love him, and you believe in him, and he's returning to you one day. When you miss out on things now, or maybe you don't seem to have as a blessed life as unbelievers around you, you can rest in the fact that you won't miss out on anything in eternity. Besides, you possess the most precious commodity on earth even now in your faith. And no matter what dangers, toils, or snares get thrown our way in this land of our exile, one day our faith will be sight. Our anticipation will be fulfilled. Our eyes will see the one that we love and believe in and rejoice in now. And I'm sure that that's going to send whatever joy we experience now into the stratosphere. And it will take an eternity to even attempt to express our joy to our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that hearts have been strengthened this morning. That no matter what people are facing now, whatever they may face in the future, that we can rejoice in you. We want to thank you today for your grace, for your mercy, for your love. And we look forward to the day you return. Help our hearts rejoice in you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.